Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Good morning, good morning. Um, When I was 17, I felt the call to be a worship leader. So I'd always felt that connecting with God uh, through music came very naturally to me. So with this in mind, I did what any budding worship leader does, and I learned to play guitar, because you clearly can't lead without a guitar. Uh, That's not true, just to clarify, that's definitely not true. Um, I spent a year learning some basic chords and some rhythms when disaster struck. I was in our church football team, and um, at one of our practices, I was doing some drills and I was running backwards. Uh, we were doing like some backwards running races and all sorts of strange things. And I fell over. I put my hand down behind me to stop my fall and crunch. After the um, incident, it was described to me as the sound of a bottle crunching, something similar to this. I immediately grabbed my wrist, oh dear, two halves, not great. That's not what you wanna feel when you grab your wrist. I looked down at my arm, my hand was off at a right angle. Um, It was kind of over here. Uh, My fingers were all twisted. (laughs) It was was pretty grim. Um, So I thought this most peculiar. Not the best thing to happen, so in my panic state, I decided to catch the bus home. Um, Thankfully, I had some sensible friends who called an ambulance, and I was taken to hospital. What I'd done is I'd broken both bones, quite clearly, in my arm and suffered an impacted fracture. This required surgery and a long process of recovery and physio for about a year afterwards. Breaking your arm is not the most helpful thing to do when you're trying to learn the guitar. I'm telling you this story for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because it is pretty grim, Uh, it's not the nicest story, but it is a helpful warm-up to the passage we're going to look at today, which is also pretty grim. Um, Also, we're going to look at, uh, through the healing process with my arm, Uh, This is the main reason. The healing process through my arm, I had to lean into different ways of leading worship. I had to learn to express my worship in many different ways without the full use of my body. I also healed through worship. Learning to play guitar helped me with the physical strengthening of my damaged limb. Through my brokenness, God was still able to use my gifts for his purposes. Today, we are going to look at the book of Judges, uh, continuing our series that just started last week. Specifically, we're going to focus on the story of Ehud. Has anyone heard of Ehud before? Yeah, a couple of people in the room. Uh, well, if you haven't, you're in for a bit of a treat. Um, the book of Judges, across the board, highlights that the people of Israel can't live in the way they should. It is a series of cycles, decline and revival. Ehud is one such example. So every time the Israelites fail and they fall, they cry out and they get a savior. And it's a cycle of sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, and peace. This is the helpful slide. Jeff had this last week. It's a really helpful graphic just to show this this cycle uh, that the Israelites are in. And God says, I will never break my covenant with you. But the Israelites, they continue to break their promises throughout the story. And Judges tells the history of the people of Israel. And it is brutal. 
Tim Keller described the Israelites' uh, relationship with God like this. God relentlessly offers his grace to people who do not deserve it, who do not seek it, and never appreciate it after they've been saved by it. Which I think is quite a, an apt, a good way of putting it. Um, so the book of Judges lays bare the tragic tale of the moral corruption of the Israelites. The overarching theme is that of the faithfulness and grace of God to us for his purposes, even when we are unfaithful and sinful. So let's take a look at today's passage, uh, Judges 3, verse 12 to 30. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. The brackets, just for me to uh, let you know that this is also known as Jericho, a vital city in the history of Israel. Just to put a bit of context to where they are. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which is about that long, uh, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who'd carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret for you, a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, Leave us, and they all left. Ehud then approached him while, they were sitting, uh, while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch, shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. He, they said he must be relieving himself in the upper, inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when, they did not open the doors, uh, when he did not open the doors of the room, they took the key and unlocked them. There they saw their lord fallen on the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sierra. Where he, when he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites went down with him from the hills with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. No one escaped. That day, Moab was subject to the Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. It's a long passage, a long passage, I'm, I'm very aware. Um, but this is definitely not a story that you would um, have seen in maybe a Sunday school coloring book. <laughs> it's visceral, it's gory, it's messy, and it's dirty. But it is also a little bit funny. And that's okay. That's okay. Think back to how the story, uh, how these Bible stories would be originally shared. They were told orally, and their purpose was to retell over and over again the family history of the chosen people. This would embed the idea of God's goodness 
to those people. A bit like when you share family stories. We share stories over and over with our kids about how we met, uh, their, their birth, those kind of stories, lots of different family stories that we share with them to give them context to what builds to where they are now. And it's exactly the same with the people of Israel. You can imagine the storyteller gathering everyone around them to tell this story, animating the, the pulling out of the sword, the thrusting into the belly, the over-exaggerated over acting of the huge Eglon falling to the ground, poo everywhere. It would be fun to watch, but probably horrible to tell. Um, and so this is, this is where we need to be thinking. The story lends itself to the way in which it is meant to be told, not our modern Western sensitivities on what should be good and proper in church. When looking through the stories of the judges, we have to, uh, have to forget our, our you know, Western ways and our Western sensitivities. We have to think of them as dinner time tales or story to, uh, social campfire stories a celebration of the Hebrew history, and a warning against repeating past mistakes again. So, let's look into the story, and let's unpack some of the plot points of the story. So the first bit we're going to look at is, it says, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, again the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Here we see, <clears throat> quite clearly, the cycle being repeated. Again, the Israelites did evil, and again they cried out. Repetition in the Bible highlights the importance of that thing. We see throughout Scripture, God will never break his covenant with his people. That is repeated. No matter what, this is the purpose of the story, to highlight how faithful God is to his people. The next part of the story, we are introduced to Ehud. It says, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah the Benjamite. So why has the writer mentioned that he was left-handed? What's important about him being a Benjamite? There are a few points here that we need to look at. Other translations of the Bible go into a little more detail here, mentioning that his left-handedness is a product of the fact that he cannot use his right hand. We see this from the use of the Hebrew word, iter, which means bound up. He has a disability. In the society that he lived in, Ehud would have been seen as ineffectual. Most soldiers were right-handed. Benjamites were famously ambidextrous soldiers, meaning they were effective in battle with both hands. And they could yield weapons with their right and their left. Judges 20.16 speaks of 700 picked troops who, with their right hands iter, bound up, could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. The name Benjamin, which we get the tribe Benjamites from, means son of my right hand. So the fact that the one hand Ehud could use wasn't even the right one would have added another layer to his perceived unworthiness. The next part we're going to look at, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. That little detail. The fact that it is strapped to his right thigh would have been unusual, as they typically would have searched for weaponry on the left-hand side of a soldier, due to right-handedness being the norm, and therefore this being the easier side to draw a sword from for most people. So the guards would not have expected a weapon to be concealed there. So. Remember, Ehud has just turned back from already giving his tribute to the king. 
So maybe he'd already been searched and didn't need to be searched again. But the likelihood is that because of his visible disability, the guards assumed he would not present a risk to the king and probably didn't even bother searching him. Also, these guards sound like the worst guards ever. <laughs> Just to put that out there. Um, Eglon of Moab, who was a very fat man. This is the next part we're going to look at. Why, why highlight his weight? Well, it was very, very unusual to be overweight in, in ancient times. Malnutrition was the norm. So the fact that Eglon is described as very fat, it's almost um, over-exaggerating for the story, shows that he is a king of excess and a king of greed. In my head, I imagine him a little bit like uh, the Goblinkin from The Hobbit, if you've seen that. I don't know if you've got a picture. Can we have a picture of the Goblinkin? There we go. There we go, the Goblin King from The Hobbit. Um, that's how I imagine Eglon to be. Um, he is a representation in this story of the oppression of God's people. He is the embodiment of all that was stolen from them and everything they had lost. He and his allies had taken everything from the Israelites. Maybe this is why his death is described in such a gruesome and embarrassing way. The next part of the story. Um, after Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Majesty, I have a secret message for you. So you can imagine this part of the story. He has just given a tribute to this false king. And on the way back, he is forced to walk past the idols and, and the false gods imposed on his people. Those stone images, they were representations of, of false gods that were put in place uh, to kind of subdue the Israelite people and the people in that nation. The stone images were representations of how far the people had fallen and what had happened to them. You can feel the anger, the injustice building up, can't you? This is the moment that he makes his decision. He's just been there, he's on his way back. Maybe he planned to do it earlier and had been too scared and maybe decided against it. Maybe he was traveling back, hatching a plan to return on his own. However it happened, this is the turning point. Quite literally, um, he turns and he feels compelled to go back with a message from God. So then the king said to his attendants, leave us, and they all left. Now, a little interesting bit of toilet history for you. Uh, the rules were different for royalty. So, um, what may seem disrespectful and odd to us now would have been completely normal for a king in ancient times. Ancient toilets offer no privacy, uh, no ro uh, and royalty wouldn't have seen the need for it. Having a toilet was probably considered quite, a, quite an upper-class thing to do, so having a toilet, the royalty would not have seen a need for any sort of privacy for that because they'd want to show people what they uh, have in their palace. Eglon, quite possibly, could be receiving this visitor whilst on the toilet. Some commentaries do uh, suggest that. This would again highlight the conceit of Eglon. Ehud seems so unimportant to Eglon that he didn't even bother to get off the toilet. You have to remember this king would have believed that he was deity or close to deity, so he could do whatever he liked over the subjugated people. Ehud gets back into the presence of the king and the arrogance of Eglon is astonishing. 
It almost seems like the king is thinking, this weak and feeble excuse of a Benjamite has come back with a secret message for the king? Without even a moment's consideration for his own safety, such is his self-assurance, Eglon can't contain himself. He dismisses the guards, who aren't any use anyway, um, they aren't worthy of such a message. Unlike Eglon, the chosen one, Maybe he beckons Ehud over, all the while trying to push his huge body from his throne. Um, Ehud gets close, so close, that he can whisper the message to the king. And if this was a Hollywood film, this is the moment he would say some fantastic one-liner. He then thrusts the sword into the king, so far that it is completely enveloped by his body, completely fully, nothing left. At this point, you know what happens, the king's bowels open, um, and it must have been a sight to behold. Uh, there is nothing dignified, nothing honorable or heroic about this death. After he had gone, this is Ehud, after Ehud had gone, the servants came and they found the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited to the point of embarrassment uh, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen dead. I do like that little point of waiting to the point of embarrassment. Um, Ehud then leaves the palace. The guards, they are still none the wiser. And they can probably smell the fragrance in the air and made the connection that Ehud has probably been told, you know, you've given me your message, be gone with you, you know, I don't need you anymore, uh, leave um, to let the king in peace. They wait far too long. Again, these, these uh, security guards, they are the worst. <laughs> they wait far too long to check on him, but by the time they do, it is too late. Ehud has gone, he's done what he needed to do, and, and there's, there's no chance of catching him. He then, Ehud is then passing by the stone images. As he is escaping, he is confronted again by these stone images. Remember, the repetition in this passage underlines the significance of Ehud seeing these stone images. Now, perhaps he might now see them differently. He might see them as they are, defeated shells, nothing but rocks. Maybe he's reminded here of the importance of his mission he is full of fear, full of adrenaline. He knows that at any moment now, the king will be found and the alarm will be sounded. But I imagine at this moment, he would have stopped and maybe taken account of what he has just done. Maybe he's reminded of the purpose of his actions and how he was saving his people from the tyranny of oppression and the desire to restore their devotion to the Lord. So he then gathers up his courage once again to lead the Israelites to a great victory. Ehud is an unlikely hero. Ehud is not someone anyone would have chosen for this task. He's not the first in line, he's not the second in line, he's probably quite down the, far down the queue if we were looking for someone to um, do what he had to do. But God chose Ehud. And God consistently chooses, uh, consistently makes surprising choices, raising up unexpected and supposedly incapable people to display his glory, his power, and his love. And we see it throughout the Bible. 
Moses had a speech impediment, yet God uses him to debate with Pharaoh. Um, and then Noah was ridiculed as a madman, but God used him to restart humanity. In the New Testament, we see God repeatedly calling the lowest and the most despised in society to obedience and to do great things in his name. God empowers messed up people. All he has to work with, I'm afraid, are messed up people. But it is important to remember, just because God empowers these messed up judges, it doesn't mean that he endorses their means of justice. They do all sorts of horrible things because of their own flaws. And we will look into that as we go through the stories of judges. And it doesn't mean that God approves of everything they do, much like people today. God calls us in our weakness to become strong in him. Why? Because in our weakness, we have to rely on his strength. And there is no other way. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 30, puts it like this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The story of Ehud is squeamish and it's gross, therefore it is sometimes funny. Uh, there's poo in it, um, but there is also tragedy in it too. The people still sinned. They went back to their old ways. There was peace after this, there was peace in Israel for about 80 years, um, a modern lifetime. Um, but the story of Ehud can point us to Jesus. Jesus was the judge. All of Israel's judges are flawed, Ehud being one of the better ones. They consistently became worse and worse, and Jesus is the only exception. He comes without sin, and he conquers all, not by the death of others, as we see again and again through the book of Judges. Jesus doesn't bring about salvation through the murder and destruction of others, but by allowing himself to take on the burden of my sin and yours dying with it and rising again, breaking the chains of death that death had over us and reconnecting his people to himself once and for all, leaving no room for human judges or kings, no need for flawed people to take on the mantle of intermediaries between us and God. Jesus completed it and he took it all on himself for us. And so as I come in to finish, I just want to end on, uh, can I have the band come up again, please? Is that all right? Just as we, we go into a time of worship, I just want to start by just framing, um, get you thinking, framing about where are we weak? Where are we not the obvious choices? Let's bring these things to God as we, as we worship and as we pray for, for one another. I want to encourage that, you know, we uh, are a family here. We are a church here. Let's encourage, let's pray for one another. Um, where are we weak? and not the obvious choice? Where can we let God in to shape us and mold us and choose us for his glory? Where in your life could God be calling you? Where do you recognize that maybe you need to be strengthened, 
Do you need God to give you confidence to overcome the things that you feel disqualified from, from stepping into the purposes God has for you? So I know in the room there's lots of different stories, lots of different people, and, um, but we are here together as church. So uh, if the band could just lead us in some, some worship. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.